Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Menashe. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today's no exception. We have a great guest, but first, a quick thank you to our sponsor. One of my friends in the real estate space, Rod Cleef, is hosting another one of his live events in Denver, May 17th to 19th, and it's all about multifamily investing. Rod was my guest on yesterday's show. If you haven't listened to the yesterday show, definitely go check it out. If you've never been to one of his events, you've got to go. And I highly recommend you do. I've got a discount code that will get you 100 bucks off the ticket price. Go to rodsbootcamp.com and enter the code ESPRESSO at checkout. That's rodsbootcamp.com and enter the discount code ESPRESSO to get $100 off your tickets. We are back here on the Weekend Edition. We interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. We have a great guest today all the way from the great white north. Welcome to the show, Kyle Humphreys. Thank you for having me, Victor. Happy to help with the podcast. So Kyle, you're involved in projects that are a little bit different from most real estate investors and most real estate developers. You're working in an area where you cannot dig a foundation because the ground is frozen. That's correct. I am working typically in Iqaluit, which is the capital of Nunavut in the high Canadian Arctic. So what happens in that kind of an environment? I have all kinds of questions. We're dealing with sub-zero conditions. We're dealing with permafrost. We're dealing with infrastructure that may or may not be there. What are some of the biggest challenges? Well, I'd say in uh, previous history, the biggest challenge is that, you're correct, you can't dig a foundation. So the ground there is either on bedrock or it's frozen and essentially just as strong as bedrock. So what engineers have had to come up with are different ways of uh, supporting structures uh, without basements and being able to support them as well as keep them heated without degrading the ground that's frozen below. So what uh, typically happens is structures are raised off the ground uh, by drilling or hammering in deep piles into the earth. So that'll keep uh, buildings elevated uh, above grade as well as uh, other creative ways of doing it are to keep the ground frozen. So if you have to build a slab on grade, for instance, you can keep the ground below cool by running coolant lines. So I think one of the challenges is that this type of construction is very expensive. And so developers will have to look at what the economics are uh, when they're building in the north. Whether you're building in the Canadian North or in Alaska, I imagine the issues are pretty similar. Talk to me a little bit about working in these remote communities where you know you don't have necessarily a complete municipal water supply. How do, how do families actually build a village? How do they build a hamlet and actually subsist year-round in these extreme conditions? So typically, because uh, a lot of these hamlets are small and they don't, uh, and they are digging in the, or working in the frozen ground, they'll actually resort to having trucked services. So they'll typically find a freshwater source above ground, uh, whether it's a freshwater lake or they'll build a reservoir in the community and pipe in fresh water. They will have a water treatment plant that will. Um, purify the water and filter it just like it would in any other municipality but they'll have uh, they'll deliver it to each home by trucks and building and so homes will typically have a polyethylene or a metal holding tank within the home that gets filled a couple times a day and same with the sewage they'll have a sewage tank much like a an underground septic but it's above ground and, and has to be insulated and heat traced which is basically running electricity through the uh, the tank to keep it warm and so They'll truck water to the homes, and they'll also have a sewage truck that would come and pump the sewage. That's how they deal with it in some of these smaller communities. 
So these smaller communities are hundreds of miles from any infrastructure. Where do they get electricity? Are they coming in on transmission lines? Are they generating it locally? How's that work? The majority of these communities are so remote that there there are no transmission lines in terms of having uh, something coming from a hydro plant. So diesel generators are set up in most of these communities. And so they'll have to bring in uh, diesel fuel by uh, ship, usually once or twice a year. And they'll be running these diesel generators 24-7 to provide electricity to, uh, to all buildings. Wow, that's fascinating. And so it's a tremendous consumption of energy. We're talking about energy for regular household use, but also to heat the infrastructure when it's minus 30, minus 40 degrees outside you've got to be heating everything all the time. That's correct. Um, the, the cost of living in the north are, are quite tremendous. Um, there is a lot of subsidies for this, but from what I've seen in my experience, you know, a typical uh, electrical bill will be running, uh, you know, 10 cents a kilowatt hour, maybe here in Ottawa, but up there you can see it as high as about 80 to 90 cents a kilowatt hour. So it, it's not cheap to, uh, to live, and uh, you'll see those costs buried in your construction costs as well. So unless someone's part of an indigenous community and they were born in that location, who else do you typically see in these communities? Are these folks choosing to live there or is it driven by employment? What's driving housing in those locations? Well, I'd say the the biggest city where I typically work would be Iqaluit. That's 8,000 people. So I would say that the, the local population is about 50% of that community. And the rest is from outsiders, uh, typically coming in for government jobs. There's a lot of territorial and federal jobs up there. There's some small local businesses starting to spring up. But I'd say a lot of that is driven from, um, from providing health care, providing education to a lot of the, the local population. The funds for investing in these communities, I imagine a lot of it's coming from the government. What about, have you run across any private investment going on in these communities? So what I've seen uh, recently, this territory is actually has a land settlement claim that the Inuit uh, with the local population um, have uh, entitlement and ownership of this land. And so they have created economic development corporations who are Inuit owned by the people for the people. And, and they are investing heavily in the Kaluit and other parts of uh, Nunavut. Uh, the most recent investment that I can think of is Kaluit really has a, uh, a hotel and housing crisis right now. And so one of the uh, hotels was recently uh, shut down making it virtually impossible to get a place for even myself when I have to travel up there. And so the uh, the local Inuit corporation has uh, invested heavily in building a brand new hotel and conference center. So they are developing a portion of the city that is their own land. They're building the main floor as a steel structure, but they're shipping in modules for the remainder of the, uh, the high-rise uh, from China. So they're getting creative with, with how they're, they're building. Wow, that's fascinating. What's been one of the most powerful lessons for you working in the North? I understand you've been there quite a few years. Things take time. I heard you talk earlier at the Oreo conference that sometimes you plan for a six-month job and really there's only four weeks of work. There, it's a, it's a big-time reality because you're waiting for uh, long lead times to ship items up. Everything comes in by boat. So companies will ship materials to Montreal, Canada, and then they'll put them on a boat for a one-month to two-month journey to some of these communities. You're sitting around waiting for this to come, and once it comes, 
you're stuck with a very short construction season because because of the temperature we're getting minus 50 in the winter and also very little daylight so you've got a short window to get a lot of work done so we typically plan a a one-year project that would be typical down south you have to plan for two maybe even three seasons to get it done wow talk about challenging conditions so what are some of the biggest needs that you're seeing in these communities Housing is one of them, if we're going to talk about the real estate uh, aspect of this. The other is water. So what fuels uh, development right now is, is access to water. And there is a lack of it, surprisingly. And so uh, development permits are based on how much water the community can uh, deliver to site. And that limits how many service lots they can provide annually. So there's a, quite a housing shortage but that's creating a huge demand and very little supply. There was a housing development recently that provided a number of extra service lots, but because of the amount of people wanting to develop these lots, they had to resort to an auction to actually uh, decide who could build on these uh, lots. Wow, that's fascinating. What drew you to working up in the north? A sense of adventure and uh, crazy uh, tolerance for cold weather. <laughs> As a young guy, I had uh, traveled to Australia, took a year off, resigned from my engineering job. When I decided to come home and, and make a bit of money, I knew I couldn't work in an ordinary job anymore. So I looked for something that would uh, send me far away from, from Ottawa and seeing places I couldn't see. And so the Arctic uh, was an opportunity that uh, accidentally came uh, came across my sights, I did not hesitate to jump on it. People talk about the magic of being in the high latitudes during the summer months when you've got so many hours of daylight. The counterside to that, of course, is in the winter when you've got almost no hours of daylight. What's that experience been like for you if you've been up there in the winter? I tend to like the darkness. Uh, I'm not nocturnal, but uh, I get a kick out of out of being in the dark. And I think one of the, the most rewarding things when you're up there is that during that time of year, when it is the darkest, you get those grand uh, northern lights that everyone's aware of. Viewing those is quite magical. So that, that'll bring uh, a smile. But uh, I'll also say a, a warm bar and a, a nice cold beer goes well on uh, when you're trying to hide away from these uh, cold, dark uh, days. Well, I love it. Well, Carl, if folks want to get in touch, what's the best way? Well, I can, uh, Victor, I can give you my personal email. It's uh, kyler.h85 at gmail.com. Well, Carl, thank you for joining us. It's a fascinating story, certainly one we've not covered on the podcast before. And for the listeners at home, if you're interested in learning more about the Arctic, definitely reach out to Kyle and have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. I'll talk to you again tomorrow.